Support for WPR comes from the Madison Museum of Contemporary Art, an independent organization dedicated to creating experiences that educate, reflect, and inspire. More is at mmoca.org. Support for WPR comes from 4imprint, providers of promotional products for businesses, including embroidered apparel, trade show items, and logoed business gifts. More is at 4imprint.com. 4imprint, for certain. Simply superior news and issues from a superior point of view. I'd like to walk you through a field of wildflowers, and I'd like to check you for ticks. You may not want Brad Paisley to do it for you, but now's a good time to check for ticks. So they're going to latch on towards the bottom of your ankles or lower legs and then crawl up. An expert tells us how to survive tick season. Plus, a Grammy-winning hit put him atop the music world before he called it quits. Now, Dan Murphy is back with Jeff Arendelle as the Scarlet Goodbye. Welcome to Simply Superior. I'm Robin Washington. The warmer weather, I think is warmer, means tick season is in full swing. But if you head out to our great outdoors at all, can you really avoid them? Tick-borne illnesses are on the rise, and summer is prime time in our area for encounters with those little buggers, no matter how much we may try to avoid them. Today, we'll learn about ticks, the illnesses they carry, and what to do if you're bitten by one, and maybe most importantly, how to get them off of you. Sharing this knowledge is Ashley Johnson, a nurse practitioner at the Asperis Tick-Borne Illness Center in Woodruff, which draws patients from Wisconsin, Minnesota, and the UP. She joins my Wisconsin Public Radio colleague, Shireen Siebert. Here's their conversation. Ashley Johnson is a nurse practitioner at the Aspirus Tick-Borne Illness Center in Woodruff. She previously performed a literature review on the challenges of managing chronic Lyme disease and now evaluates and treats patients who have contracted tick bites and tick-borne illnesses. I want to welcome you, and right off the bat, I want to admit, I always assume ticks are insects, but that is not true, is it? No, they're not actually categorized as insects. They are in the arthropod family, and they are actually an arachnid, which is um, in the spider family. So they have eight legs and flat bodies, so they are not an insect. Okay. Well, how many varieties of ticks are they, and do they always bite humans, or do some just leave us alone? Um, There are quite a few uh, types of ticks. Um, We have three main types of ticks here in Wisconsin. Um, They do not only bite humans. They mainly feed on small mammals, especially the white-footed mouse, Mm -hmm. um, and also deer. Um, However, an interesting fact is deer are actually immune to Lyme, um, so the tick does not contract Lyme from the deer. That's interesting. Where are ticks most often found And how do they latch on to people if they can't fly or jump? Um, So they're usually found in the brush or long grasses, um, in the woods. Um, They're usually on the ground. So you're not going to find ticks in trees or, you know, they they don't fly or jump. What they do is they tend to kind of hang out on like a blade of long grass and they wait for something to brush by them. And then they kind of latch on that way. So they're going to latch on you know, towards the bottom of your ankles or lower legs and then crawl up. 
Do they hibernate over the winter? I mean, this is prime season for ticks, but what happens to them during the rest of the year? Yeah, they they kind of hunker down. Um, and then as soon as the snow melts, they start to move about. Um, so anytime you have uncovered ground, um, you can have ticks. So we've seen tick bites as, as early as the beginning of March um, w- when we have those those warmer weeks. Mm-hmm. When do they lay their eggs? So typically in the spring um, is when we see an abundance of the nymphs, which are the baby ticks. Okay. Um, and they are the ones that are really, really tiny, about the size of a grain of pepper or a poppy seed. Um, and those ticks can still transmit diseases. Um, and they usually are the culprits because they're so small, a lot of people don't notice them. Mm. Um, do they live inside homes or do they try to you know, be more outside? Ticks are outside. I mean, they, they can um, be brought into the home. A lot of times um, dogs and pets are big carriers of ticks into the home, um, but they don't generally try to move into a home. Okay. Okay. So they, they'd rather get out. I've always right. been curious. I mean, obviously ticks are, uh, they're vampires. They eat our blood, but do they eat anything else? Nope, they feed off of blood of mammals and birds and humans and sometimes reptiles. So they're just blood eaters. How often do they need a blood meal? Well, anytime they're going to molt or transition um, from larvae to nymph, from nymph to adult tick, um, they will feed. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess at, when they're trying to have a meal to then transition to the next phase of life is when they feed. All right. There has to be a reason for ticks, you know, in the whole food chain. So what eats ticks? You know, what feeds on the tick population? Well, chickens will feed on ticks. Some birds will. Um, but as far as I know, that's about it. I don't think there's um, a lot of predators for ticks, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately, exactly. Ticks will feed off of mammals. So I know that um, we don't get line from consuming meat that ticks have probably fed off of, like cows and pigs and things like that. Have ticks become more prevalent in Wisconsin over the years? Yes. Yes, they have. Um, And part of that is um, global warming. So as we get warmer weather and not as harsh of winters, um, those small mammals that they feed off of do not die off. So they have more of a chance to feed and mate and um, molt. And so then we get higher tick populations. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, now that we know there's, there are more ticks than ever, it's really important to prevent these tick bites in the first place. So what are some of the best ways to do that? What do you recommend? Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime that you're going to be hiking, gardening, out in the tall grass, doing yard work, moving leaves, um, you want to wear tall boots. Um, you can tuck your pants into your socks. You want to close that ankle gap. Um, so that they can't get onto your skin. Um, You want to use a bug spray with at least a 30% deep concentration. Um, And then, you know, also uh, you can use uh, permethrin, which is a chemical that you can spray on your clothes and shoes. It does not go on your skin, but that will pre-treat your clothes to repel ticks. Um, 
when you're done working outside, you want to go in and throw your clothes in the dryer on high heat for 20 minutes, and that will prevent any ticks that may have been on your clothes from coming into your home. Um, you also want to check your pets, make sure that your pets are preventatively treated for ticks, um, and um, it's good to check your pets as well. If they have any ticks on them, you want to remove them right away. What is the best prevention strategy for dogs and cats? What works for them? Um, there are multiple options. There's um, collars that you can use that, um, you know, you want to make sure that the, the, the collar is touching your dog's skin. So mm-hmm. if they have a lot of fur, you want to make sure that it's closer to their skin. Um, there are oral medications that um, dogs can take, sure. um, which then will kill the ticks um, as they feed on, on your pet. Uh-huh. <laughs> they will fall off. Uh-huh. Um, and then there is also oil that you can put onto their skin directly, which will repel ticks. Well, a lot of people spray their yards for mosquitoes in the summer. Um, and I know there's a lot of debate about whether or not that's good for the environment. But I'm curious if, if you know whether those sprays also work on ticks. Some of them do, yes. So some of them have permethrin in them, um, which um, does repel ticks. Um, and another thing, too, you know, if you have kids, is you want to make sure that you put their play sets and gardens and all that towards the center of your yard, not along the edge where the ticks are going to be um, hiding. Um, so. So that's another tip. Oh, that's a good tip. Yeah. Nurse practitioner Ashley Johnson is our guest today. We're continuing our discussion on ticks. So tell me more about the Aspirus Tick-Borne Illness Center in Woodruff. What's the mission there? Our mission is to um, prevent the development of Lyme disease, you know, spread knowledge um, and education about tick-borne illnesses. And then we also want to provide hope and healing for those patients who potentially are suffering with um, long-term issues with tick-borne illness. Why do you think Woodruff is such a good location for this center? I, I mean, are you kind of at the center of, of Tickville in Wisconsin? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, northern Wisconsin, we have a lot of woods up here. We have a lot of lakes. We have a lot of opportunities for people to, you know, contract a tick bite. And so um, it is a great location Um you know, we are not that far from, from Minnesota or the UP. We do get a lot of patients from all of the surrounding states. So we're kind of in the heart of it. I'm curious about your role at the center, too. What, what is your primary focus as a nurse practitioner? So I see patients and evaluate and treat patients um, of all ages. So we do tick bites anywhere um, from preventative treatment of those tick bites to treating acute illnesses to managing chronic patients. We kind of see a whole spectrum of people. I really want to talk about the best way to check your body for ticks. What should you do? Um, is it important to shower immediately when you get out of, of the woods or, or what do you recommend? Yeah, I mean, it, it is good to shower. Um, that can potentially get any ticks that are, you know, not embedded yet off of you, but it's not going to get ticks that have already embedded off of your skin. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do, do still want to want to do a tick check, and you want to check all the areas where it's dark and cozy. So, for instance, uh, behind your knees, your groin, your armpits, the belt line is a big area where we see a lot of ticks. 
um, the bra line um, and then the hairline and behind your ears, all of those places, they kind of like to tuck into the crevices, mm-hmm. um, the belly button. Um, Ew. So, yeah. oh, just, I'm getting the willies just thinking about a tick in my belly button. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, definitely we'll make sure to check there. What What's the best way to remove a tick that has burrowed itself into the skin? We've heard so many things. It's uh, tweezers and, and is that is that the best way? Just pull it out? Um, so you can use the tweezers, um, but you want to make sure that you don't squeeze the body of the tick. So you don't want to go over the top of the tick because that is where they harbor all of those diseases. So if you're squeezing the body, it's going to irritate the tick and then it potentially could regurgitate its stomach contents back into your bloodstream. Um, so you want to come in perpendicular to the tick's body and grab the head and then pull straight up. Um, there are a lot of other tools out there which are very helpful there's a like a tick tornado or a tick twister where you just slide the tool um, underneath the tick's body twist it and it pulls the tick out those are really easy tools to use um, even on your pets and um, there's also one called a tick key which is kind of the same concept Um, so all those tools are meant to prevent you from squeezing the body of the tick what should you do if you can't get the head out completely? That's happened to me where you've got the, got the body of the tick out and the head is still in there. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing with keeping the head in is, you know, the head is where the saliva is. And it's possible that that tick could have some bacteria in its mouth part still that could transmit to you. Um, you also want to, you know try to get that head out because it is a source of infection. Um, However, you don't want to go digging. You know, I would recommend going in and having someone look at it to try to remove it. Um, If you can't remove it, um, then your body will eventually disintegrate it. Um, But then you would want to monitor for signs of infection, like increased redness, swelling, drainage, pain. All those would be worrisome signs. What about the best way to remove a tick from a dog or a cat? Boy, my cat got outside last uh, last fall and came in with like five ticks. Um, and I, I was just mortified. We got them all off. But I mean, it can be tricky. Yeah. Honestly, I use the, the tick twisters or the tick tornadoes. I think those are great tools. They're quick. They're easy. Um, or just the tweezers. It's the same concept. You still wouldn't want to squeeze the body of the tick, but... You know, obviously it's harder on an animal that's not going to want to sit still. So I guess the tools are are the best option, I think. Okay, that's good to know. I know ticks can be kind of tough to spot on a pet, especially if you have a pet with long hair. Are there favorite hiding places? On the pet? Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, around their ears, you know, anywhere. If they have thick fur, they pretty much can be anywhere. So Mm -hmm. I would just go through and try to kind of move their fur around to get down to their skin to see and feel with your hands. If you feel any bumps, make sure you check out the bump and make sure it's not a tick. Um, the front of their chest is, is a common area as well as they're walking through the fields. Um, and under their chins, around their necks, their collars, those areas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of folk remedies about ticks. I always say this is a category of things my mother said. So my my mother always said to put petroleum jelly on, on the tick and it would just back out needing air. Is that true yeah. or false? I mean, it may work, but again, you're going to irritate the tick. 
and so that's really what you want to avoid. You don't want to put anything on top of the tick or burn the tick or anything like that because it's going to irritate the tick, and then you're going to be more at risk for con- contracting those diseases. And you mentioned burning a tick. That's another thing that people say that they burn the tick off. I'm for, first. I'm like, how do you burn the tick off without burning yourself? But, uh, right. but, but you shouldn't do that either. I would not recommend that. No, I would use the tools or the tweezers just so you avoid irritating the tick. Well, after you remove the tick, how should the area be cleaned? Um, I would just use soap and water. um, And you do want to save the tick because um, it's good to bring the tick in if you're going to go see a provider so that they can identify the tick. Um, We can kind of get an idea of what diseases you're at risk for depending on the type of tick. We can also send that tick in for testing to see exactly what pathogens it was carrying. So it's a good idea to save the tick. Um, Generally, we don't want you to put it between two pieces of tape because it's hard to get it out. Okay. (laughs) So just a plastic bag um, is best. And then, um, yeah, just, just soap and water is fine. You don't have to put alcohol on it or iodine or anything like that. Okay. All right. We are talking about tick season with our guest, Ashley Johnson. She is a nurse practitioner with the Aspirus Tick-Borne Illness Center in Woodruff. Ashley, pretty much everyone has heard of Lyme disease. But I have to admit, many of us, myself included, only kind of have a fuzzy idea of what it's like. So can you explain what Lyme disease is and what are the effects of it? So Lyme disease is a um, spirochetal disease that is transmitted by the deer tick, and it is the most common disease worldwide, nationwide, and in Wisconsin as far as tick-borne illnesses go. It causes a symptom complex that includes flu-like symptoms like fever, um, migrating joint pain, so joint pain that moves around from joint to joint. fatigue, headache, muscle pain, Um, you can get a variety of symptoms. But if it's not treated early or adequately, it can go on to persist long-term. How long are we talking? Well, so if you have what's considered chronic Lyme, um, we can't cure it at that point. The goal is remission. So Lyme is a very smart organism. It evolves and changes um, to survive within our bodies. Uh, so there's a, a lot of mechanisms that it, it uses to um, morph. Um, and so once it gets to that point, it's very hard to get rid of all of it because it's constantly changing. Um, so you can see in those chronic patients where they'll go into remission, but they may have a flare or a relapse down the road. So when is it time to get medical attention? I mean, right after you've been bitten by a deer tick or should you wait for symptoms to appear? The first recommendation that we always say is to get on that preventative course of treatment, which is going to hopefully prevent you from developing the symptoms in the first place. So you don't want to get Lyme disease. Once you have the symptoms, then it's a longer course of, of antibiotics and you're already infected. So the best thing to do if you have an embedded deer tick, you're not, if you're not sure how, how long it's been on or you think it's been on for at least a couple hours, would be to get on a preventative course of, of antibiotics. Ashley Johnson is a nurse practitioner with the Aspirus Tick-Borne Illness Center in Woodruff with some great advice today. 
That was my Wisconsin Public Radio colleague, Shireen Seward, speaking with Ashley Johnson, a nurse practitioner at the Asperis Tick-Borne Illness Center in Woodruff, which draws patients from Wisconsin, Minnesota, and the UP. And if after that you're thinking you need to take a shower or something now, coming up are the much more pleasant sounds of the Scarlet Goodbye. Setting fires, carnal desires, but we've been listening to liars. We could never seem to read a room. Wildfires, funeral pyres, tube amplifiers. Welcome back to Simply Superior. I'm Robin Washington. If you're a rock musician playing with a group or two and hitting the top of the biz with a Grammy winner, then stepping back from the game for a while, what do you do for your next act? For former Soul Asylum lead guitarist Dan Murphy, it meant partnering with an entirely different type of musician with the more personal and introspective Jeff Arundel. Their mashup began in 2019 and grew in an attic studio during the pandemic, and the results were, well, we'll let you hear them in just a bit. Here to talk about them are Dan Murphy and Jeff Arundel, who will be appearing at Earthrider and Superior next Friday. Welcome to Wisconsin Public Radio, Dan and Jeff. Thanks, Robin. Yeah, thank you, Robin. So your collaboration is described as a mashup, and I want to get to that. But first, tell us what each of you were doing before that. Dan, the Grammy-winning song was Runaway Train with Soul Asylum, and that was 1993, so I think you've been around for a little while? Yeah, I think that Runaway Train was probably on Grave Dancers Union, which is maybe our sixth or seventh record, so I was probably 10 years into my career at that point. And um, it was kind of nice, changed our lives to some degree. Um, We were very busy for the two years following that. We toured constantly, like all over the world. Uh, we recorded on Columbia, which is owned by Sony. So we spent a lot of time in Japan and New York City and toured. And um, we did an unplug thing that just came out a couple weeks ago for MTV. where We got Lulu up to sing with us. We did To Sir With Love. And that was kind of all that very same year, 1992, 1993. It was crazy busy, but it was pretty fun, as I remember. I'm guessing you may not have been too mature in your age when uh, Lulu first came out with To Serve With Love, right? That was a reprise. I remember hearing that track, and I mean, it has that great line about how do you thank someone who's taken you from crayons to perfume? And I remember um, I had met her at a Grammy party, and I told her that we covered that song. We did it kind of in earnest, and she said, oh, and she just happened to be in New York when we did the Unplugged, and she stepped up and sang it with me, and it was with us. I thought it was really cool. I mean, mm-hmm. Kind of a generational thing, and she was probably 15, maybe, when she starred in that movie with Sidney Poitier. Right. Well, I'm a grandfather now, and trust me, I was uh, probably in the crayon stage when she came out with that. So, <laughs> uh, so Jeff, how about you? Yeah, Dan and I, it's interesting he brings that song up, because he and I have been around the same amount of time, but we had never met each other. I love that song when that song came out. I can poignantly remember it. And I'd been making records and producing and Dan had retired, actually, and he came up to my studio because he was at my party, and I played him a couple things, and he, he became introspective in that moment and said, geez, I really miss this. And I said, why don't you come over and we'll 
goof around a little bit. And he came over about a month later, and that's how it all started. And you're both from the Twin Cities area originally? I'm from Duluth, actually. Oh. Daniel Murphy speaking, yeah. I was born in Duluth, and I went to Chester Park Elementary School until third grade, and then we moved to the Twin Cities. Mm -hmm. And Jeff? I'm a South Minneapolis guy, so we ended up being City of Minneapolis high school guys that didn't know each other. (laughs) There were 11 high schools, so... It was easy to not know each other. If anyone's wondering at this point, I suppose I should disclose that we are all members of the 60-something club. We are speaking with Dan Murphy and Jeff Arundel. They are performing together as The Scarlet Goodbye. You can tell us about the name in a bit. Their collaboration is described as a mashup, and I'm going to give you a little of my music theory here, if you will. Uh, I often cite as the archetype of mashups the Beatles, with John Lennon writing ephemeral, conceptual themes like Imagine There No Heaven, No Hell Below Us, uh, Stuff You Can't Visualize, and Paul writing concrete songs like Every Day She Takes Her Morning Bath, She Wets Her Hair, Wraps a Towel Around Her As She's Headed to the Bedroom Chair. And what made them the Beatles was mashing them up together. Uh, How does it feel to be one of the beautiful people? And then baby, you're a rich man, keeps all his money in a great big bag. I use that actually quite seriously to teach developing writers uh, how to write a news story that you give a concept of what you're talking about and then you give a concrete example. So that's my theory. How do you two approach it? Well, I think we have really different styles of writing. Um, First off, Jeff is a a very accomplished um, acoustic guitar player, like finger-picking style-wise, and that's been kind of fun to use as a basis for the tracks. And then when we write songs together, I kind of like to just throw out phrases or metaphors or, like, things, and Jeff is more concrete in terms of, like, telling a story. Mm -hmm. So we bounced ideas off of each other, and we tried to keep it kind of vague enough where it's not, like, you know, just plotted and it hits you over the head. We also tried to have like a starting point, an end point and a middle point and with an emphasis on like melody and harmonies. So it kind of, I don't know, it's kind of a either songwriting works or it doesn't. And for whatever reason, we started writing together. The first song we wrote is on the record. It's called Paris. And I think it came out really cool. It was like kind of a hodgepodge of what Jeff had done and what I had done. But it didn't sound like anything I'd ever heard before at the same time. Well, why don't we hear that? Here is Paris by... The Scarlet Goodbye. I heard your name is Paris now. I suppose that you're for sale. I could make it easier, but what would that entail? You could come and live with me. We could start a fire. Let it burn so selfishly And capture our desire Paris sounds so nice in spring If she doesn't kill you first Come fly with me or fly away We'll find out which is worse The things we do for relevance That lead us all astray Paris, are you out tonight? Paris, if you're out tonight, please don't fly away. Please don't fly away. I 
Paris by The Scarlet Goodbye from their new album Hope's Eternal. Bandmates Jeff Arundel and Dan Murphy join us and they will be appearing at Earthrider Brewery in Superior one week from today on May 26. Robin, you know, it's, I, I hadn't thought of what you said about the Beatles, but now that you said it, I think you're right. And it is eerily similar to what Dan and I, I think, have done with each other where Dan is is more imaginary and visual, and I end up being more narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, so that Paris, we got going right away on that. And then Dan created that pivot in the song where our drummer Ben, as we were tracking it, said, oh, I always wanted to be in the Rolling Stones, and <laughs> here I am. And it's where the song shifts into the end part of the song. And so that was all Dan and something I never would have thought of and never would have done. And that's where it started, right, with that kind of combination. Mm -hmm. Let's hear something different here. Rosary. Rosary, that's the first song on the record. One of the first things that we recorded. Um, And it's interesting guitar and rhythm track. We kind of recorded at Jeff's studio where we are right now. And there was like a drum set that was about four feet away from a guitar amp and a bass amp. And so there was a lot of bleed into all the instruments. So it kind of became like this organic sound where there's guitar and the drums and drums and the guitar and it kind of sounds like people playing in a room mm-hmm. and lyrically i think i was kind of going for um sort of an anti-love song it's like um <laughs> people hold on to something like maybe like a rosary as an article of faith you, you know you just you believe in something and you need something around your neck to remind you that you should believe in it and i kind of thought of like sometimes people stay in loveless relationships and the only reason that they stay in it because they're afraid of what it would feel like not to be in love. So it's kind of a little grim, but it's kind of where I was going. All right, we can do grim. Here is Rosary by The Scarlet Goodbye.
And that was Rosary off the new album Hope's Eternal by The Scarlet Goodbye, composed of Dan Murphy and Jeff Arundel, who are playing at Earthrider Brewery in Superior a week from today on Friday, May 26th. This is their first album, correct? Yeah, this is their first recording. We came out about, what, two months ago, maybe, yeah, Jeff? end of March. And The Scarlet Goodbye, where's that come from? Well, we were in Love Child. We kind of had that for a second. And then I thought it was kind of funny. There's an expression, the Irish goodbye, if you know what that is. I think it's when you're on a really bad date and you go use the bathroom and you never come back. But then I thought if we called the band the Irish goodbye, people would think that we're going to be like playing Irish music. And Jeff came up with the Scarlet goodbye. And I thought it was kind of perfect for the music. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is Jeff. One of those things that's just evocative, right? And the word scarlet is just a great word. I mean, I always like that word and the scarlet goodbye. You know, it implies something. I can't exactly say what, but it's emotional, I feel like. So I mentioned it to Dan and he immediately liked it. Great. Well, tell us where we can find out more about your music. Well, you can go to thescarletgoodbye.com and we got everything on there. You can you can listen to the music. You can get the updates on where we're going to play. Uh, you can stream us on all the streaming platforms. And we do have vinyl, and uh, the vinyl is for sale in, in pretty much all the major vinyl outlets because we're lucky enough to be distributed by Universal, major label distributors, so they got records out everywhere. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be all around. We're going to be in Superior, and then we're going to be back up in Silver Bay, Robin, in at the end of August. I love it. In the, where yeah, in Silver great... Bay? I didn't know there were venues up there. Yeah, they have an outdoor series that runs all summer, and it's got some really great acts in it, and we're lucky enough to be in that at the end of August. I usually ask uh, influences in your career, but, you know, you guys have been doing this for a little while. Uh, that may be a long time ago, but hey. This is Jeff. Dan has been influencing my career lately, I can tell you. Robin, I took 10 years off where I didn't really listen to music much at all. Mm-hmm. I left my band, and I was kind of casually fed up with traveling that much and playing that much and i just um i took a real serious hiatus from picking up a guitar really listening to music and it was really um kind of healing for me it was kind of felt great to go back to playing and writing and performing and recording music again i felt like the break was necessary but it's fun to be back and i i remember why i loved music when i was 18 years old that's all i thought about at that age you know when i started playing guitar and started uh, wearing really long hair and buying Les Pauls. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say that is unusual. You know, you do hear people taking a couple years break, but uh, a decade probably puts you in the class by yourself and speaks more <laughs> of your partnership today that you guys sound really dedicated to each other. Well, thank you. That's kind to say. Thank you very much. How about one more to take us out? Can you play Sandy? Sure. Here's a good part of this, Robin. This was maybe my idea at the start, but this is not a typical song for me. And so Dan kind of shoved me a little into the rock realm on this one. Mm-hmm. And we sing it together. We sing the lead vocal together and I play the guitar riff. And so it's really fun when you've been a singer songwriter, you know, and to do this kind of thing that we do in Sandy, which is not typical. You know, Jody Mitchell didn't do this kind of song <laughs> yet. Yeah. Well, Joni Mitchell still has time. We've been speaking with Dan Murphy and Jeff Arundel. They are the Scarlet Goodbye. They'll be playing at Earthrider Brewery in Superior next Friday, May 26th. Their first album together, Hope's Eternal, recently dropped. 
Dan and Jeff, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, thank you Robin. Welcome back to Simply Superior. I'm Robin Washington, and we're joined by Rick Lubbers of the Duluth News Tribune. Hello, Rick. Hi, Robin. And Shalon Monroe, multimedia journalist for WDIO-TV. Hello, Shalon. Hello, Robin. So, Rick, there's a bill in the Minnesota State House for the closing days of the session that might change a few school mascots, including in our area. Yes, it would. Uh, part of a bill nearing the legislative finish line in the Capitol uh, would prompt the Northland School District to change its mascot or at least ask American Indian leaders across Minnesota to approve it. A K-12 through education finance and policy bill that was agreed upon Saturday and formalized Monday by Committee of State Senators and Representatives includes a ban on American Indian mascots that would take effect September 1, 2025. It could ultimately mean a new name at a handful of school districts, including Esco Public Schools in Carleton County, where students have played under the Eskimos' nickname for decades. The Esco District's nickname is a local twist on Eskimo, which is a term that is considered offensive by Alaska Native people to whom it refers. Esco school and sports teams have traditionally used an igloo logo, but the district has moved away from the logo in recent years. Now, the bill would prohibit school districts from using a name, symbol, or image that, that depicts or refers to an American Indian tribe person, custom, or tradition as a district's mascot, nickname, logo, letterhead, or team name. Uh, that prohibition wouldn't apply to schools located on reservations, however, where at least 95% of students are American Indian. Schools that don't fit the bill, though, such as ESCO, uh, could ask Minnesota's 11 tribal nations and the Tribal Nations Education Committee for an exemption. Um, if any of those bodies deny the request, however, the exemption would be denied, and the school would still need to remove its mascot by the September 2025 deadline. In ESCO, there's been a push to change the district's mascot since 2020 when students there made an online petition to change the Eskimos' name and Igloo logo. ESCO School Board Chair Jerry Frederick said last week that he's planning a meeting with other district leaders to consider their options after the school year ends. Uh, that includes sorting out how much it might cost to replace the logo on district equipment and buildings as the district gets a handle on its budget for the 2023-24 school year. Frederick estimated that the cost of replacing the name and other imagery would be substantial. Uh, they're displayed on the football field, in the school's entryway, and on team uniforms. All right. Well, last year we reported on the new sheriffs in the region on both sides of the bay. The sheriff in St. Louis County is making a few staff changes. Yes, uh, once a sought-after agency, uh, the St. Louis County Sheriff's 
Law enforcement division is now finding itself struggling to hire and retain enough qualified candidates to fill critical public safety positions. Concerns shared across the profession as agencies face dwindling recruitment numbers and a wave of retirements. For instance, during a 2016 hiring cycle, St. Louis County Sheriff's Department produced 78 applicants. By comparison, a hiring cycle last year resulted in just three candidates being hired from a pool of 20. And the most recent posting this spring netted only six applications. So it's emerged as a top challenge for new administration led by Sheriff Gordon Ramsey, who hopes to bring in a fresh perspective as the agency's first new leader in 20 years. The Sheriff's Law Enforcement Division has seven vacancies out of 112 authorized positions as of earlier this month. That may not seem like a major shortage, but uh, union officials warned of a potential looming crisis if hiring trends are not reversed. Uh, typically, the agency has looked to not only fill existing vacancies in its annual application process, but also hire for openings that are expected based on upcoming departures. A large number of deputies were hired in the 1990s and are now hitting retirement age, and there could be easily another half dozen openings by the end of this year. Officials say the 2020 murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and a tide of negativity have impacted the profession. Uh, law enforcement training programs, including those at community colleges in Cloquet and Hibbing, saw enrollment numbers nosedive overnight, and even some veteran officers began looking at other career options. Now, the result is that agencies have been forced to get increasingly competitive with wages and benefits in hopes of attracting candidates from an increasingly shallow pool. And the reality, Ramsey said, is that it's impossible to compete with more lucrative jobs, particularly those in the Twin Cities. Staffing challenges are hardly unique to St. Louis County, though. Uh, the Duluth Police Department, for example, has consistently been operating 20 to 30 officers short. Since taking office, Ramsey said he's also met with the union representing the jail and 911 employees and undertaken efforts to bolster staffing levels in those divisions. While 16 correction officers have been hired in the past year, nine out of 53 positions still remain open as of May 1. Uh, meanwhile, at the 911 Dispatch Center, a strong hiring campaign over the winter dr drastically improved the stability of that division. Vacancies remain for only about three full-time positions. All right. And we should point out that Sheriff Gordon Ramsay, by the way, is not to be confused with the Gordon Ramsay of culinary fame, although the two have met each other. But speaking of celebrities, it's probably a good idea not to steal their shoes. <laughs> yes. Uh, federal prosecutors have charged a man with stealing a pair of Judy Garland's famed ruby slippers from a Grand Rapids museum nearly 18 years ago. A grand jury on Tuesday indicted 76-year-old Terry John Martin of Rural Grand Rapids in the 2005 heist of the iconic artifacts from the Judy Garland Museum, according to a statement from the U.S. Attorney's Office in North Dakota. Martin is charged with one count of theft of major artwork. Uh, no further details were released on the circumstances that led to Martin's indictment or whether authorities are still pursuing other suspects. Uh, the slippers were notoriously taken while on loan to Garland's Birthplace Museum in August 2005. They were recovered by the FBI and the Grand Rapids Police Department in Minneapolis in July 2018, but the investigation at the time was said to be ongoing and authorities have remained tight-lipped. Uh, the slippers are one of only four surviving pairs worn by Garland in The Wizard of Oz. Uh, they were insured at the time for about $1 million, uh, but federal agents said they currently are appraised at more than $3.5 million. Uh, the brazen theft continued to captivate Garland's hometown, the state, in the arts community for 13 years. Uh, the police department received tips from around the world, 
A dive team even searched the mine pit in 2015, and an anonymous fan offered a million-dollar reward for information leading to the slipper's recovery. And while the Grand Rapids Police Department uh, long tinkered with the investigation, the FBI said it became involved in 2017 when an extortion attempt was made against the insurance company that now owns the slippers. The agency's division and art crime team executed search warrants in both Minnesota and Florida and recovered the slippers in a sting operation in Minneapolis in July 2018. While filed in Minnesota, the case was assigned in 2018 to federal prosecutors in North Dakota, but authorities have not elaborated on why it was transferred to the neighboring jurisdiction. It was not immediately clear when Martin would make a court appearance or if he had an attorney. A uh, check of court records shows one felony conviction for receiving stolen goods in the 1980s, but otherwise Martin does not appear to have a significant criminal history. All right. Well, at least we can be thankful that nobody threw the slippers away. But Shalon on the Wisconsin side, that could be a problem at the Superior Landfill, which may be reaching its fill. Yes, Robert, that is correct. So the Wisconsin Point Landfill started in the mid-70s and was replaced by Superior Landfill, also known as Moccasin Mike Landfill. Now the landfill, although located in Wisconsin, weighs from pretty much all of northeast Minnesota, ends up at the location. The landfill was built in five different phases, and 40 years later, the landfill was expected to go through 2026, and they're starting to reach capacity, and once that happens, it'll be closed for good. Now, there are two options proposed for a new landfill, one in Itasca County. They proposed a $20 million project to construct a landfill in the city of Kiwan. And in St. Louis County, they have proposed another $20 million project for a new landfill with a site in Kenyon being the location of interest. The Minnesota House is expected to decide on both bills before the current legislation session ends on May the 22nd. But if approved, the project will take time. So a lot of time, but you got to have somewhere for all this trash to go. Absolutely. Well, again, we're glad there's no slippers in it. <laughs> We've been joined by Shalon Monroe, multimedia journalist for WDIO-TV. Thank you, Shalon. Thank you so much, Robert. And Rick Lubbers, executive editor of the Duluth News Tribune. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Robin. You can stay updated on these stories and all the regional news anytime at WPR.org, DuluthNewsTribune.com, and WDIO.com. And that's it for this edition of Simply Superior. We leave you with more of the music of The Scarlet Goodbye. I'm Robin Washington. Stay safe, everyone. Thank you.